0: Well, I hope you're all over your turkey comas. I trust your Thanksgiving was enjoyable and reflective of all that is yours in Christ Jesus. Pastor John is away today with family. (laughs) My family's just away. Uh, And yet I'm here today because God has adopted me into his family. And to be before you is a great blessing. I can think of no other place I would rather be today than here with my family in Christ. I love the church because Jesus loves his church. I encourage you to open your Bibles. Uh, We're in John chapter 14. The gospel of Jesus Christ according to John And I will start reading today in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I. In you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said, to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are here today to worship and praise your holy name. We rejoice today that we serve a holy God. We live in a land where from a time of war in our nation's history, a day of thanksgiving has been instituted. But as your children, we are called to be thankful every day. First Thessalonians 5.18 reminds us, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Please forgive us, Father, when we forget to do so. We praise you and thank you for salvation in Christ, that in him and through him we are redeemed. We rejoice in the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness to us and our sin being imputed to him. We give you thanks for our salvation, our deliverance from the domain of darkness of which you called us out of and brought us into your marvelous light. We thank you for all the grace that we have received, having been adopted into your family. Lord, may the truth of your word help those here to see the peace that is ours in your Son. We thank you for loving us first. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Yes, I've spent a lot of time in this upper room trying to understand, trying to put myself in the place of the disciples. Jesus here is in his... Farewell discourse, for he knows that his time has come. Having looked into the eyes of Judas not too many minutes ago, Jesus knew his time had come. He knew that the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent was coming to a climax. He knew that his final battle, The prince of peace against the prince of darkness was near. And so he was preparing and trying to comfort his men. He knew that in the future, his disciples would be treated just as he had been treated, with hate and much opposition. Jesus had commanded them at the beginning of chapter 14, not to be troubled, but they still were. And so he laid out many promises for them. If you are sitting here today with a troubled heart, remember, these promises that Jesus spoke of are for you as well. So from the verses I read today, there is a promise of another helper who will be with them forever the Spirit of truth. He promised not to abandon them like orphans, that the Father would love those whom love Christ, and that the triune God would abide with them. Then there is the promise of the Holy Spirit teaching them and bringing to their remembrance of all that Jesus had spoken and taught them as His bodily presence Would soon be gone and he would be absent from their midst. Now, in verse 27 that we're looking at today, the first word is peace. In the original language, it's the word irene, which is defined as a state of national tranquility or exemption from the state of war or a harmony between individuals. It speaks of security, safety, and prosperity. It is, in our verse, the Messiah's peace. Salvation is the way that leads to peace. And of Christianity, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. Peace is also defined as the blessed state of devout and upright men after death. If you've ever visited, sometimes when we're away, we'll we'll visit a, a graveyard. I remember in Texas, seeing a line of family from the 1800s, and so many of their kids died at a young age. And yet at the bottom... Of the tombstone. It would say. Rest in peace. And so. When we think of peace. We can think of it as a state. Of wholeness. When all essential parts. Are joined together. And so we can say true peace. Is God's gift. Of wholeness. And that gift. Is only found in Jesus Christ. The word peace in the Hebrew dialect is the word shalom and is still used today in Israel as the standard for saying hello and goodbye. So from Thayer's Bible Dictionary we have defined peace and there have been many a man who have labored to have peace in this world that we live And because of our neighbors to the east and to the west, I want to share a history lesson that I learned in my studies as an example. Now, if you know me, I'm not a very artistic person. So many of you are just... The music today, wasn't it beautiful? So many talented artistic people. The only time I got an A in art was when they asked me to draw flies. Some of you get it. In, in, in Richard Phillips' commentary on John's gospel account, he shared this story. And so I want to share it with you. If some of you have even left the Friends denomination, and you may already know this history, but it's something that I never knew and I'm not an art connoisseur, but Edward Hicks was a 19th century American folk painter and a minister of the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. Nearly all of his many paintings were devoted to the same subject, the peaceable kingdom of Isaiah 11:6, which says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Hicks' paintings had two goals, to show that Christians could be practicing artists and express his hope for peace on earth. Art historians group Hicks' paintings into four periods. The first period, known as the Border Peaceable Kingdom, for their surrounding borders with the text of Isaiah 11:6, Depicted the lions and the lambs mingling sweetly with Quakers enjoying peaceful pursuits in the background. The second phase, the banner Peaceable Kingdoms, featured banners of Isaiah 11:6 6 wrapped around human figures. Now, however, there is a disquiet and anxiety with the people not gathering but dispersing these paintings reflected a division within the Society of Friends between those who sought a rural lifestyle and those Quakers who lived prosperous city lives. The last two phases, the Middle and Late Peaceable Kingdoms, reflect Hicks' abandonment of any hope for peace on Earth because of increased division among the Quakers with the animals fighting and humanity divided. In Hicks' very last painting, his own depression is depicted by a lion hunched over in sure exhaustion. What do these works of art tell us about Richard Hicks? Seeking peace on earth through the labors of men, he discovered nothing but division and strife, even in a society of religious friends. Why did his quest for peace fail? Because he looked to men and not to Jesus Christ. I share this history of Edward Hicks for you to see that he was longing for true peace, a peace that is available only through salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ. And through him, we can be justified before God. This is the peace that Jesus has already offered to leave and to give his disciples in John 14:27. This is a, yet another promise to add to the promises already in this chapter. And Jesus is the one who will fulfill each and every one of these promises. You see these these promises aren't like the mustard in your in your refrigerator or the ketchup These promises don't have an expiration date. All of these promises are eternal. And so we need to remember that. So in verse 27, we see there's two kinds of peace listed here one is left, and the other one is given. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. He is leaving them what little he owned. Now, my parents had a few things, and they, they left some, and it had TOD on them. The lawyer isn't here today. It means transferable upon death, so that when they were gone, they were left automatically to me. Nothing had to be done. Now, we know that Jesus didn't own much. From what he would proclaimed to a scribe who said that he would follow him wherever we went until he counted the cost. Matthew eight twenty, just a short verse. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe was thinking of breaking ranks and following Christ, but he hadn't considered the cost of taking up his own cross, the cost of leaving his life of plenty and comfort. We know that Christ had lived in borrowed houses. He didn't own land. He didn't have a fancy chariot with chrome wheels. He didn't have anything like that to leave his disciples. And so in in our verse, in chapter 14, we see the verb leave. He's going to be leaving them. By tomorrow night, at the same time as they're hearing this, he will be dead. He will be out of their midst. What could he leave them with a the TOD, transferable on death, attached to it? Why, he left them a deposit of real peace in their hearts. Or think of the transfer of wealth this way. He left them the gospel of peace to be preached to all the world. Now that's a great transfer, is it not? I really like how Matthew Henry depicts the last will and testament of our Savior. Or what Jesus left behind. And I quote, His soul he committed to his father. His body he bequeathed to Joseph to be decently interred. His clothes fell to the soldiers. His mother he left to the care of John. But what should he leave? His poor disciples that had left all for him. Silver and gold he had none. But he left them that which is infinitely better, his peace. End quote. What a great inheritance he left them. And that he left us through the working of the Holy Spirit. Next, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. We see here that it is Jesus who is doing the giving. And that the peace he is giving is personal. He says, my peace. This is not a peace that he's wishing for them to have or a peace that one could go out somewhere and find on their own. No, this is his personal peace that is being transferred. This is is an inheritance way beyond any earthly possession. This is the personal peace that Jesus enjoyed while walking here on the earth. This peace is what filled his own heart in his obedience to the Father. This is the peace that he had before he came down from heaven. Scripture tells us in John six thirty eight, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Father's will and the Son's will are in perfect concert together. And so this personal peace that filled the heart of Jesus is what is being given away. This peace being given is supernatural. When you stop to ponder all that Christ had been dealing with in his ministry. We know that the religious leaders were constantly after him, trying to trap him, denying that he was from God, and wanting to put him to death. Satan was always dogging him. One of his disciples had left him, and was even at this very moment, in the dialogue that we're reading, was preparing to portray him to the authorities. The disciples were by his side, but not for long, and all that he was promising them didn't seem to be comforting their troubled hearts even though these knuckleheads at this moment in time don't realize what is being left, what is being given, his personal peace. This peace is personal in the sense that he is going to pay for it with his own blood, by his passive obedience upon the cross, in his willingness to undergo the pain, suffer the holy and just wrath, of God the Father in paying the penalty for our sin. And may I say that his passive obedience was not restricted only to the cross. Remember where he came from. He came down from heaven. He spent 30 years surrounded by the curse of sin and lived in a world that was in constant rebellion against his Father. Yes, he was saddened over Jerusalem. And yes, he cried over the death of Lazarus. But I'm sure that he had other pains as well, just as we do in this life. If you have received the gift of peace, then you know that God's covenant of redemption was worked out by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. What a comfort I have. What a comfort I have. What a peace I have in knowing that before the earth was formed, the triune God chose me and wrote my name down in the Lamb's book of life. Do you find peace in that today? Do you have that assurance? That this covenant was soon to be completed by Christ in his act of obedience, his whole sinless life of obeying the law of God. He was perfectly righteous as to be the lamb without spot, which was sacrificed once and for all, for your sins and for mine. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As a reminder, those chosen men, his disciples, he picked them out. They were the best of the best. He chose them. He said to them, Follow me. They only had the Old Testament. They are looking forward to the cross. We have the full counsel of God. We have our New Testaments. We're looking back at the cross. We are looking back to his atonement. Jesus already knew from before time began that it was what it was that he was sent to earth to fulfill. You remember in Luke 2, at age 12, uh, they're heading for home. The Passover is over. And they're like, where's Jesus? And they went back. Three days later, they found him. And what did he say? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? At the age of 12, he was sent to give us peace through salvation. Now you may be here today not understanding yourself as to what makes this peace that Jesus is giving away so special. Maybe you didn't live a life like me. Maybe you were brought up in the church. His disciples were unaware how special his promises were at this point. For it to be special, you must first realize that you and God are enemies outside of Christ. That used to be me. I was like the, the, the Quaker painter, Edward. I was looking for peace in the world. I thought it was all here, I just couldn't find it. I didn't know God, and I didn't know that we were enemies It wasn't until a man took the time to open up the Scriptures to me and show me that I was a sinner and that I was alienated from God and that I truly was under God's righteous condemnation without Christ. It was then that I turned to Christ in faith. I was then able to receive the Irene the peace that is a gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's all through the Bible, folks, from the first page to the last. It all points to Jesus Christ. And it's Thanksgiving. We're here. We're rejoicing. We've had time with our families. We've had an abundance of food. We still live in a free land. We're here today. The freedom to gather. And so we, we thank you today, Lord, for our salvation. For our, for our deliverance from sin's dominion. We thank you, Lord, for our spiritual growth. We thank you for the growth, not just in us, but the growth in people around us. Others within the body. We could go on and on of all that we have to be thankful for. But I'm talking about peace today, this special peace that only, only Christ can give. Paul reminds us in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the first word here? Therefore. And so what's it there for? Paul is summing up his arguments of the earlier chapters of Romans and our need of perfect righteousness, a perfect righteousness that we're unable to attain on our own, to stand before a thrice holy God, to have fellowship with him, is all dependent upon faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this peace is a perfect peace. This is not a ceasefire. This is not a temporary truce. The war is over, and the harmony between God and the redeemed is eternal. Not that the war with our flesh is over, That will come in glory. But our enmity with God is no more. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. Does it not bring us comfort knowing that the enmity between God and us has been taken away? Does it not bring us joy in knowing that we have been delivered from God's wrath, hatred, and His curse upon man? It allows us to rest in, his peace, in the peace of Christ as our sin has been imputed to Christ and His righteousness has been imputed to us. How good is that? In John Owen's book, communion with the triune God. He brings together, he connects, if you will, the promise of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26, and the promise of peace in verse 27. Owen reminds us in this quote that it's all the triune God's doing and nothing of ourselves. So may I quote Owen. Suppose a man chosen in the eternal love of the Father, redeemed by the blood of the Son, and justified freely by the grace of God, so that he has a right to all the promises of the gospel. Yet this person can by no reasoning nor arguments of his own heart, by no consideration of the promises themselves, nor of the love of God or grace of Christ in them, be brought to any establishment in peace, until it be produced in him as a fruit and consequent of the work of the Holy Ghost in him and toward him. End quote. Oh, and then goes on in his book to point us to the well-known fact that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's amazing how many times in Scripture peace and joy are put together. Using Scripture to interpret Scripture, we must read the words of Paul to the church in Philippi In Philippians 4, 7, very familiar verse, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This truly is the peace that the disciples were needing as Jesus was addressing them that evening long ago. And a peace that we truly need when things are looking dim or bleak, when we can't comprehend what in the world is going on. We have hope in his grace, that his peace will guard our hearts, our minds, and keep us from turning away from God into wicked thoughts or wicked desires. One more familiar verse. It wouldn't seem like Sunday if we weren't in Colossians. (laughs) Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This passage is showing us that this peace of Christ should be a pattern in our lives, If we are truly saved, we notice the words, you were called, which deals with the doctrine of election, and that we were all dead in our transgressions outside of Christ, that until you can comprehend the doctrine, you will have no peace at all. This peace of Christ causes there to be harmony within the body, within the body of Christ, his church. Now, Pastor John preached this message on this passage not too long ago, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it again. I did, and I was encouraged again. God's Word always encourages us. So back to John 14, the upper room. Not as the world gives, Jesus said. What kind of peace does the world give? It's a shallow peace. It's an unstable peace. It's an unsatisfying peace. It's a peace that is void of truth. All we have to do is look at the world's institutes like the U.N. Peacekeeping Council or the International Peace Institute or even the Peace Corps, and the list goes on, of those promoting peace, a false temporary peace. In my study time, Pastor John's always got me looking at the dead guys, Thomas Brooks describes the world's peace, and he says, the world sinks to us and sinks us. It kisses us and betrays us like Judas. It kisses us and smites us under the fifth rib like Joab. The honors, splendor, and all the glories of this world are but sweet poisons that will endanger us if they do not eternally destroy us. A.W. Pink would call the world's peace a chimera. If you're like me, you're saying, what's a chimera? My daughter had a chinchilla. I thought maybe something like that. But a chimera is an illusion or fabrication of the mind. The world's peace fails under trial and is truly fake. The prophet Jeremiah complained about Jerusalem's worldly leaders in Jeremiah 6.14, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. James Montgomery Boyce characterized the giving of the world's peace as insincere, since the motives seldom match the words. He said it's impotent, since our peacemaking seldom achieves more than a hostile truth. That the world's peace is scanty, always giving less than what was possible. And the world's peace is selfish, often giving with a true desire of receiving something in return. And I couldn't help myself from quoting one of my favorite dead guys, J.C. Ryle, the world can give temporary carnal satisfaction and can gratify the passions and affections and pride of the natural man, but the world cannot give inward peace and rest of conscience. End quote. So we can see the contrast here in the peace that Jesus is giving, the peace that is lasting and eternal, and what the world gives is temporary It comes and goes. It's only on the surface. It is only based upon your circumstances. Skipping way ahead in John, John 16, 33, Jesus knows that his hour has come, and he encourages these 11 men. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Here again, he is promising his peace, which is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Amen? Now, I know that some of you have trouble sleeping, some of you take gummy bears at night, but I'm thinking you have trouble sleeping at home and at night, not during my sermon. But some of you, with the gummy bears, they kind of carry on. They don't get out. I'm the opposite. I lay down 60 seconds, (laughs) I'm out. So I'm hoping this analogy about sleep, for those of you that are awake, will, uh, will help you to understand the difference between the Lord's peace And the world's peace. The Lord's peace is like a good night's sleep. The older I get, there's nothing better than a good night's sleep. And the world's peace is like a night of tossing and turning until sunrise. No fun at all. At the end of verse 27 of chapter 14, we see the words, Do not a command do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful sounds familiar doesn't it it's like John's going around in circles here this was what he said the first verse of chapter 14 except for the ending in verse 1 Jesus was encouraging his disciples not to be troubled in heart as he has more he was more concerned about them than himself he also encouraged them to believe in God and to believe in Him. Here in the latter part of verse 27, he says, nor let it be fearful. I found it in- interesting that the Greek word for fearful and I, I, dileio, means to live in fearful dread. Okay, I've lived in some fearful dread, but in the... New Testament, this is the only place this word is used. So Jesus is encouraging them and us not to be troubled and not to be a bunch of cowards either. That's what the word means in the original language. Don't be cowardly. True peace in Christ causes us to lay our burdens upon him and rest in his goodness forevermore. I know I'm getting close to that line of you being a hostage. Now I must ask, are you God's enemy? Maybe you're like the Quaker painter looking for peace in this world. There is no middle ground, you know. There's no neutral space. You are either God's enemy or you are his child. And so I challenge you today do you truly know Jesus Christ? As his enemy, you will never, ever experience true peace. As his child, you will know peace for all of eternity. There's no special formula. Romans 10.9 makes it so simple that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it, my friend. That's it. Turn to Christ today if you don't have his peace because there is no peace outside of Christ for he is our peace. Let us pray. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. God bless. Amen.